there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen, creative people and their journeys. I love talking about it. And today my guest is one of my oldest friends. Jude Hopkins is the author of a book called Babe in the Woods. We first met when we were students at ASU. And then we actually were roommates in L.A. for a while. Um, she inspired the character of Dr. Beaverman in my book, Screening Party. There are little things about, uh, like, jokes and things I got from her that are in Misadventures in the 2 and 3. Like, one of my favorite people in the world always made me howl with laughter. And I'm so proud of Jude that she's got this novel out, Babe in the Woods, because I remember she started writing what I think was the germ of this idea, even back in college when I knew her uh, at Arizona State and in L.A. I remember it. And so it's out. It's Babe in the Woods, and uh, I really enjoyed reading it. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by me. I pretty much do it. So if you want to support it, there are a couple ways you can do that. You can go to dennisanyone.net slash support and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. It helps me cover the expenses that come with doing this podcast. Like I recently signed up with a platform that does websites for podcasts and they make it look really good. It's all automated. And so if you go to my website, dennisanyone.net and click on the podcast, you can see their wonderful handiwork. It's such an improvement. So, but you know, I, I pay a little for that every month. So, you know, your, your, your virtual tips help cover those kind of things. Also, I would love it if you considered becoming a subscriber to DNR Studios. DNR Studios is a group of shows I'm part of. And for a monthly fee, you get my show two days early and you get all these other terrific shows. And you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. And if you subscribe and say that I'm the show that you listen to most, then I get a little money, which is nice. So, there's that. All right, that's enough for the plugs. Here now is my interview with my old friend, Jude Hopkins, author of Babe in the Woods. Joining me now via telephone from Northwestern Pennsylvania, it's my old friend, Jude Hopkins. Hi, Jude. Hi. I can't believe I'm hearing your voice. This is so I know. Wild. It's been decades. Really, it has. And, and when I hear your voice, I think of answering machine messages because you used oh, to leave yeah. the most funny messages when we all had answering machines. And then we would uh, also do them together as like little shows. We would. We did the Aretha Franklin, George Michael. Yes. Uh, one, I can't remember what, what we sang at that point. It was like, point. so please but leave um, a imagine, message. Please leave oh, a message right. for me. Yeah. But imagine the patience of our friends having to endure all that. I, I, I mean, Tony and I, my <laughs> former roommate, Tony, we used to do like one-act plays. They were long. I know. It's, it's unbelievable. And, people, and I remember singing like uh, a whole Brenda Lee verse about, I'm sorry, I'm not here to answer the phone. Right. And it went on forever. <laughs> they but, did. And people would leave, but people would leave messages and they were they were really fun. I remember I when I was in college, we met when we were both at Arizona State. You did yes. an outgoing message for me and my roommates, um, Mike and Howard, as Mary Richards. Um, oh. Do you remember this? Oh. You were like, WJM I, Newsroom, Mary Richards speaking. Oh, oh hi, my Mr. God. Grant. I'm, no, I'm getting no. just like a little limbic <laughs> remembrance of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm just jumping in because I found a couple of the outgoing messages that we did on an old cassette, and I'm going to play them now for you. You've got Jude as Mary Richards, and then Jude and I as Sonny and Cher. WJM Newsroom, Mary Richards speaking. Oh, hi, Mr. Grant. No, Dennis, Mike, and Howard aren't in right now. Well, no, not Ted or Marie or Richie's not in here either. Uh, Mr. Grant, could you just leave your name and number after the beep and they'll get back to you? Oh, Rob? Oh, Millie? 
why they can't come to the phone. Oh, Sonny, Sonny, leave your message I am told. They promise they'll get back to you. Okay, so that's what that was. It's like we had to, we had to like show all of our uh, various talents in one telephone message. So. <laughs> we really did. It was a, it's a lost <laughs> art form, and but it was but, a big hit. People did not complain; they loved it. Um, oh. So you've written a book called Babe in I the did. Woods, and it's yeah. delightful. And I'm really proud of you. So congrats, oh, first of you, all. Thank you, Janice. Thank um, you. You wrote a book too. And, and you're several. featured in both of my books in, in certain ways. In Screening yeah, Party, yeah. you contributed to the character of Dr. Beaverman. You pretty much were yeah. the Dr. Beaverman character, which we'll talk about a little later. Okay. Um, and then there are, in Misadventure in the 213, there's a few things I'm sure that are like Judy centric. Like the, one of the characters does a one act play called Asshole in Me, um, uh-huh. which I think shares a little DNA with what you write about in this book. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> about this ex. Oh. Um, so how would you describe Babe in the Woods to somebody that knew nothing about it? Well, a lot of um, diehard romance people are upset because I think they expected an HEA, which in the biz is happily ever after. Oh, but I saw you write it, a post about this on, yeah, on, one of, I mean, on social I'm, media, I and I was like, what is HEA? HEA. Yeah, yeah, happily ever after. Okay. Um, three letters that aren't in my vocabulary, necessarily. <laughs> um, you make me but, laugh more than anybody, by the way, and I'm oh, remembering God, that even as we, as we speak. Yeah, so oh, bless you. So it's it's a tale of a girl in um in basically a small rural town with a lot of trees around it and she's looking for love, but there's more trees than bachelors. Right. And she had gone to LA and came back because she wanted to take care of her dad and write the uh, ultimate play about the last moment of innocence in a woman's romantic life, which of course is impossible to pin down, but she's got a lot to learn. That's all I'll say. Right. And I really liked her, but I didn't always like what she was up to, which I thought was right. so interesting because yeah. it's kind of, I think, ballsy as an author to ask your, your readers to kind of go with this, some of this behavior. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one one blogger said I'd love to slap her upside the head. And I think and I think that's true because she's smart, but she's kind of blindsided when it comes to love. Yes. And has a lot to learn, but that's why I ask people to go on this journey with her, but a friend just wrote me overnight and said he didn't want to go really too much on that journey because you know, she she doesn't have to to do the things she does. But I think a lot of women are blinded by love, especially women with um, backgrounds about dads and stuff. I threw that in. But I think that there's a lot to learn about men and relationships. And I cite Sex and the City as an example. They talked about men constantly. Right. So, you know, it's still men are from Mars and women are from Venus or whichever way that was. So I think she's got a lot to learn and she's an embittered romantic. But take the journey with her because I think she has a lot to learn and people will learn with them. I agree. With her. 
I agree. And by the end of it, I was really invested into seeing how it was going to go. I didn't know. Oh, I'm so I didn't glad. know how I wanted it to go, but I really needed to know. Because she, she, she's trying to write this play, and she's she's a little stuck on it. And she meets this person in her small town. This 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 man, this kind of sexy yeah. guy, comes to town, and she thinks that he's going to be her inspiration. And, yeah. and she kind of seeks out to kind of study him under the guise of helping him. So it's a little right. shady. And right. you want to see how it all plays out. Um, I was really invested in it. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. When you set out to start it, what did you know about your story and what did you sort of discover along the way? Well, it started out as the Scarlet Syndrome. I remember that, that book is, well. You were working on it yeah. when we were uh, in L.A. together. Yes, it started in, in Arizona, actually. And, you know, it was before Scarlet went on the down low and got reevaluated and all. Scarlet O'Hara from um, Gone with the Wind, yeah. Right, right. But um, it, it was going to be like women with alcoholic fathers, of which I am one, um, have a certain desire for unavailable men, i.e. Ashley's, over the available Rets. Right. But there really wasn't much alcoholism in Scarlett's father, so I was really stretching it. But that's something I've done before, and it's never bothered me. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he did drink when he went over the fence. But he wasn't really, you know, a, you know, an alcoholic. But I got an agent who wanted to, to have me write the book, and then I got nervous and said, "Well, okay." And then I tried to get a psychologist to give me some ballast to the whole idea of it. She didn't ask for that. She just wanted two more chapters from me. Right. But I didn't have the security to do that, so she withdrew the offer, unfortunately. So. When I moved to California, I thought, I'm not going to abandon this. I'm just going to make it into a novel. Right. And uh, tamp down the Scarlet reference. And that's how it kind of came about. And also my love life uh, got into it a little bit as well. And how maybe, you know, there's more women than we think who who really do go for the unavailable flashy, good-looking guy over the available solid guy that's right there, the red. Right. You know what I mean? Right. right. And that's something we see in a lot of romantic storytelling, even like Absolutely. Hallmark movies. There's the sexy guy and then there's the nice guy. Right. And right. your right. book has a little of that, but it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. It sort of no, undermines it that, that theme, which is kind of cool. Um, your character of Hadley worked in the music business when she was yes. in Los Angeles, which you did. Yes. And I remember we were living in L.A. We were roommates for a while. You worked at Capitol Records. Yeah. And you posted recently about when Tina Turner came to the office. Yes. Can you yes, tell that story? I loved reading that post. Um, she, you know, stars would come through and occasionally they would get they would say, we want to meet the staff, or you can come and shake their hands, like Paul McCartney. But she asked specifically just to see the people who helped promote her record or write, you know, helped do the grunt work for her record, which I was very impressed with, because I thought, wow, she doesn't have this big flaming ego like some of them do. And she just met with some of the people in my department who had been the staff, and we went into this little tiny lunch room, which at Capitol 
it, it's all cramped because it's all circular. So you never you try to go to the bathroom there because the doors fly open. Do you remember what but, you used to call the Capitol Records building? Oh, something with a penis, I think. No, you called it the steel tampon. Oh, okay. I was dirtier back then. But anyway, she just sat down in this little lunchroom and talked to us, and I was very starstruck, so I can't remember very much what she said. But she was very small, which surprised me because she's 10 feet tall on stage, and she had on a beautiful white or beige pantsuit, so I didn't get to see her legs, and was very, very humble and classy and gracious and thanked us and there was absolutely no I'm a big star don't touch me I just was so impressed with her loveliness that's all I can say you know that's really just, cool you just can't believe that this this beautiful gracious classy little woman would be up there on stage going you better be good to me yeah you know which of course I wanted to do being the ham that I am I wanted to do my teen impression but I did know when to rein it in back then occasionally. <laughs> well, but yeah, she really impressed me. I loved her. I'm, I love to hear that. And also that 80s comeback, when you think of her career, that was kind of amazing that that happened. Because oh she was not God. young. And no. you can't imagine somebody like that coming back today. It feels like the culture and the music business are different. And I love that she did. I yes, loved it. Yes, it was inspiring. Yeah. Who else yeah. do you remember from your record company days? Who else was cool? Uh, Paul McCartney and Linda. Yeah. And I do remember that um, they said, you can go down and meet them and get your picture taken, but you're not allowed to touch him. If he extends his hand, then you can shake it. And I thought, oh, come on. And I mean, compare this with Tina Turner, who, who was so not like that. But I, I remember there were two people on either side of Linda and, and Paul, and uh, one girl from recording at Capitol ran to his side so I'm not going to say I got stuck with Linda, but I got stuck with Linda. And But she she pulled me close to her. She put her arm around me, and I liked her. She was she was really cool, and she had on really kind of bright blue eyeshadow, which kind of surprised me. But, you know, she was just a kind of a nice person. I love it. And I said to him, I love you. I've always loved you. How's that for originality, Dennis? It's <laughs> super and, original. Um, you know you what? Know, it's pure. Were... It's pure and simple. It's honest. <laughs> and you were the soundtrack to my life. Every cliche popped out of this English teacher's mouth. <laughs> and he said, oh, thank you so much. And Linda said, you got good taste. And I thought, why is she speaking Liverpudlian <laughs> when she's from New York? But I, I do remember her, like, pulling her me closer and she made little noises while they were taking our picture, like, mm -mm, mm -mm. yeah. So it's funny what you remember. But he, he was very sweet. He was shorter than I thought. And I had a spaghetti stain on my blouse. So I do remember that. There you go. And he did not mention it because he's nice that like He didn't. That. He didn't. No, I'd eaten some spaghetti at Martoni's which was around the corner from Capitol. Yeah. And we didn't know, or I wouldn't have gone the spaghetti route. <laughs> um, reading the L.A. sections of your book was interesting to me because one of the characters in your book has a big dream, and your character is trying to help them, or, or you're pretending to try to help them. And it yeah. sort of had that sort of broken dreams quality of L.A. What was it Ooh, like writing about L.A. And, and, and how you feel about it after having stepped away? Yeah. Um, I don't think it was for me. Uh, 
I don't know. It, you you were the Bryce inspiration, by the way, in case anybody cares. There's a character named Bryce who's who's delightful, by the way. I was I, That's true. I'm very flattered. I felt like there was well, a little true, overlap, and, and I feel like he has Scott Williams' old house in Silver Lake. Yes, um, Scott he and does. Peter's house. Yes. Yeah. I believe there's a cake that's breathing in there, too, from Peter. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, I think I look at L.A. with great nostalgia and yet great um it was a smash dream you know i just didn't i didn't seem to make much of it you know i wasn't the la type i don't think but people go there and i was scattered i think but it's good in retrospect though it makes a good story yeah it certainly was rich a rich part of your book um the the character that hadley meets trey who's like this aspiring singer and reminds her of her ex Derek, and they're sort of a type of guy that are, they reminded me of like teen idols in teen magazines, sort of like yeah. beautiful, sort of beautiful, almost cheesy in their beauty. Um, right. And uh, you write about them as sort of a, <laughs> like there was this one line, where did I write down? Like a lot of the men I loved are like types. Um, I'm getting it wrong, but you describe them as a type. Um, right. Does that resonate what I'm saying? Do you remember that? Yes. And F. Scott Fitzgerald always says you should write about individuals, not types, but um, there is a type like that, and every girl and guy knows knows that. You know, I mean, I, I think Hadley's kind of stuck in her uh, teen idol stage, right? You right. know, because of her background and her desire for, you know, ephemeral love and all these things that aren't her real life, right? But I mean, every girl's met a guy like that that's kind of takes your breath away, you know. But you know, reality isn't always. It's not always reality. Yeah. And she does get a kiss. There's a hot kiss in it. Yeah, there's a hot kiss, and she pulls back and wants more, but, you know, timing is everything. <laughs> it is It is everything. Um, you write about uh, the, going to Recording Star in Westwood, which we used to do, which was like this yes. booth where you would go and pay money, and they would let you sing songs, and then you would get a cassette. And I was so into it. We used to go together. We did a bunch oh of Oh, my them. God, all the time. We were so into that. I know. And we really did think we could be a star, you know. But as I write in there, we always kind of defaulted to Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And it's like the default song for all, you know, amateurs. But you were really good. But I think we had a couple of Shunny and Cher tapes sure. and... And Barbara and uh, we did uh, we did you don't Neil. bring me flowers because I remember going I know and I never knew so the song natural. and I never knew the lyrics and you knew everything <laughs> but and they were so reverbed they were reverbed Jesus no they were amazing and those were great memories yeah. I still have a bunch of those tapes I might see if I can oh find one God. to put at the end of this but you included that in that book and I was like oh that was a moment in time when those things were like a I thing know. that people would do yeah and I assume they don't have them any longer correct. I don't think so. I mean, I don't. I feel like you probably could do it on your phone. You could literally go into a booth in your phone. Um, True. But it was like, what was it like? Nine ninety nine. I felt like it was. It was really cheaper. I couldn't have gone. <laughs> but we loved. But we always we included patter. We always included oh, yeah. patter at the end. You you, you felt like character. the, the per person that worked there was always a little amused by our. Yes. Shtick. Yes. Yeah, and, and we I wrote mean, parodies. There was like, 
there was like a whole minute worth of you and I doing Neil and Barbara at the end going, you know, well, how was I? Was that any good? And, you know, it was just, but I mean, when you live in L.A. and you live on, you know, ether and aspirations, it was like a solid moment where you could be a star, where you could have made it. And for nine ninety nine, it wasn't bad considering all the rest of the yearning and longing that goes on out there. So I still have a bunch of those tapes, and I probably would cringe to listen to them, but I still have them. I have not thrown them away. Um, but, you, you also write about game shows, because I remember, like, you and I went to see our friend Jim Tompkins McLean play Jeopardy and wipe yes. the floor. But also, and he'll the- love he'll love that you name checked him. <laughs> yes, and, and I won. The home game. Like, there was a door prize. You not only won the home game, you won the, um, what's that thing that they stretch between trees where you can... A hammock. I won a hammock. Yes. You won a hammock. I wonder where that hammock went. Who did I give it to? You, you went out loaded. I but really... you know what was disappointing about that was that Alex Trebek was talking about his ex-wife during commercial breaks, and I was so disillusioned. Because he was trashing his ex-wife gently, but still it was like <laughs> gently joking trashing. about it. I love gently trashing. That's such a great oh, title. Yeah. Uh, oxymoron. But I just thought, oh, Alex, must yeah. you do this? I know. And what a weird forum for him to do that. I don't remember yeah. that part of it. I just remember winning door prizes and having fun and also Jim winning. Like it was just like, we're all winners. It was like euphoric. I um, know. We were. And I think he went to, what was that place in North Hollywood? Afterwards, where they used to have singing waiters. Uh, Michelli's. It was either Michelli's or Little Tony's, which are both still there, as far as I know. Okay. Yeah. And he went there to celebrate. Yeah. And, yeah. And rightly so. 40 grand was nothing to sniff at no. back in 88 or whatever. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I loved it. And also, there's a game show mentioned in your book. And we used to watch this show, Trivia Trap. And I felt like this yeah. was a, a spin on Trivia Trap because one of the. One of your exes was on Trivia Trap, and so we love yes. to talk about that show. Trivia Trap. Right. And I remember him saying um, he won all these uh, paste-on fingernails that he didn't know what to do with. Oh, so they ended up just kind of in a garage somewhere. That was his big prize from Trivia Trap. <laughs> well, he won over ten grand, I yeah. believe. All so. right. Do you remember yeah. who one of his competitors was on that show? Uh, Sandy Glossman. <laughs> and what was, her, uh, what was her thing? Um... She was like UCLA. Yeah, <laughs> my name is Sandy Glassman, and I'm a junior English major at UCLA. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, we... we made her famous, so I hope she's doing well. She's probably sure she... married with ten children. Yeah, she probably could buy and sell us. She's probably buying um, this podcast, which isn't really for sale, <laughs> but I would sell. Let's hope I would so. sell to Sandy Glassman in a fucking heartbeat. Now, yes. there's another moment that you bring up from your time in LA, going to see David. Cassidy perform at the Ambassador Hotel. Oh my God! Do you remember that? I don't. But I was I there? Oh my God! Okay. But we could we that left. be because he never showed? Maybe if he had showed, I would have remembered. So we went yes. there, and he never showed, and we left. Well, he went. He he. When I interviewed him later, because he came here, God love him, um, and we talked forever. I thought he was so charming, and I I just couldn't get off the phone, and I had to teach a class, and I thought. You know, I got to teach a class when I could be chatting with David. Um, but he said he came on after midnight, and he remembered v- very well that performance, you know. But, um, yeah, he did come on, but it was we, – we, we all pooped out. Right. I don't know who we went with. Yeah. 
But I, I, but I remember some of the other things. There was the leak at the Greek. Do you remember the story of yeah, the leak so at the Greek? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that. But it was but at I a do... Wilson Phillips concert, and yes. who were they opening for? Was it Richard Marx? I don't Marks? know. Who was it? Richard Marx, maybe? It was a capital act because I got free tickets. Yeah. So yeah. I was into Wilson Phillips. Um, yeah. I interviewed recently Vincent Patterson, who is the choreographer of the Blonde Ambition Tour, and I was uh-huh. talking about when we all went. I bought 10 yes. tickets. I got my ticket from somebody at Capitol who couldn't go. So I got really awesome tickets. Oh, fact, awesome. What do you remember right about the show? Pardon me? What do you remember about the show? Um, I sat behind Dennis. Oh, God, my mind. Who was the, like, the, the Hollywood star married like a teenager? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. His, he was sitting there with his wife, and she kept saying, can I have money to get a T-shirt? It was just like this weird <laughs> relationship because he was older and she was so young. And right. he kept right. handing over the money, and she'd run and get Madonna stuff. <laughs> so I was very close to the stage and saw Madonna in all her glory. We wrote a lot of song parodies back in the day. We were big on them. And yes. do, do you remember my friend Scott, uh, who lives in Tucson and... Uh, we were music camp counselors together and, and friends. And he texted me just like a month ago to remind me of the lyrics to the Bananarama Venus parody that we did. Do you remember this? I, I remember our doing it, but I don't remember it. So it's remind me. It's still one of my favorite song parody lines ever. Venus was a tribute to lesbianism. It was a celebration of lesbianism. <laughs> and the chorus was, uh, this is the chorus, don't want penis, weave vaginas, they suit just fine us. Oh my God! I love I mean, the that weave. Is, that, that is, that's brilliant. That's really brilliant. I do brilliant remember um, a Mona Lisa parody. Oh yeah, Mona Lisa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was yeah. a deep cut. And if I can go back to the ambassador one more time, sure. Um, do you remember um, how we went looking for the place where Bobby Kennedy was shot? Yes. So we like took some passageways that were you know blocked by some rotting palm tree. And it, we got in trouble. What are you doing here? Wow, I Get don't remember. To... I don't remember this, but I must have. Yeah, I must have been there. I must have gone there. But yeah, yeah, we yeah. did. But we did get to see a couple rooms, but we didn't get to the kitchen. Yeah, but we we got in trouble. So yeah, there you go. Um, getting back to your book, I read recently a post that you'd posted on a another writing blog and something talking about like why the final chapter was what. You really wanted people to take away from. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little about those ideas without giving too much away? Because I thought that was a really powerful thing that you wrote. Well, I, I just think that she kind of pulls it all together at the end. You know, daddy and ex-boyfriends and Neil and Trey. And it's, it's just she got finally used all the information she collected on her journey from her good friends and people who cared about her. And I think that's important, too. Um, and she kind of pulled it together. But my idea in that last chapter is that so many people have these great futures and wonderful talents and all these goals, and they never realize them. And it just wonders me, to quote the Pennsylvania Dutch, why that is. Why do they talk about it, but they just don't see it through? I mean, I I just thought writing a book was on my bucket list, and damn it, I'd go down dying to do it. 
and I knew it was going to be work and it was going to take a lot of strength and energy that I didn't necessarily have. But I just thought that was one of my life's goals. And yet I see all these people around me who were blessed with talent and looks and and they talk about it a lot, but they never do it. They just fall into convention, like I'll get married and have babies, which is like the default mode for so many that having a baby is like, oh, I I did my duty, I realized my goals. But that doesn't say anything about them. You know, what happened to those goals? And I, I think of that great Hemingway short story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, where the guy marries a rich woman and he forgets all about the journalist he was going to be. And as he, lay, as he lies uh, on a bed dying, he thinks about that life and the people he met and how he gave it all up and got soft. And I just find that so frustrating. Why do people give up? And I think that might be the, the theme of my second book, if I live. And, you know, just explore that. You know, why do they give up when they were so full of fire when they were younger? And I'm going to do this and I'm going to be this. And there's an old quote from a, a, a 19th century Oxford Don who, who said, you know, you should burn with a hard gem-like flame. What happens to that flame, you know? They get married and have babies. So I just like to think about what's the differentiation between the people who burn with that hard gem-like flame and those who peter out. I resonate with that a lot. And, like, having been out in L.A. where there are so many people dreaming and so many people trying, right? you do see it get knocked out of people because there's just been too many disappointments, too many things that almost happened that didn't happen. It's one of the themes of this podcast. We talk about it a lot and how people manage that. Um, In the book, your character of Hadley is dealing with what she calls writer's block about starting this play. But I don't think it's really that she doesn't know what to write or doesn't have the ideas. It's that other thing. It's it's, It's about something else. It's not about, oh, I don't know what the words are. It's about right. I'm afraid or I, I can't. Right. And I think that people, a lot of people relate to that. What is that about too. for her? Well, I think it's insecurity, and I just wrote another blog. It seems like I'm always writing blogs. No wonder I can't do anything else. <laughs> no, they're, they're um, great, though. I love reading them. Oh, uh, thank you. Um, well, I just think she's insecure, and I think a lot of women and men are insecure. I mean, it was like when I had the self-help book, and the agent said, just send me two more chapters. But I didn't. I thought, I can't do that. i got to get a shrink to help me stiffen this up. And then I lost a deal. It's, I think we just question ourselves so much. And we shouldn't. Uh, you know, it's just like, have the guts, have the balls, have the je ne sais quoi to take those steps and keep going, you know? Right. And I, I just think that that's true with Hadley, too. She's she doesn't have that security, but uh, I think you really, really have to pull it out of yourself and go ahead and do it and face the music and and feel insecure. And I can't tell you how many times I was rejected by agents, and sometimes disdainfully. But I just thought, damn it, I've got enough of my mother in me. God rest her soul. I just lost her. Yeah, I'm so sorry but about she that. she was kind of solid like that it was like you don't give up and she never mollycoddled me it was just like 
well, you've got to do this. You've, you've got to do it. And I think that was what I finally believed in was I've got to do this. And, you know, she had Hadley had enough friends around her that loved her, which I think is so crucial, and had the balls to go ahead and do it. So that's what I would say to people, do it and encourage people to do it. I mean, I just talked to one of my friends, and she said, I'm so glad you wrote this book because it really inspired me. And I thought, wow, you know, that's that's heavy duty. And one of my best friends said the same thing. He's working on a book. And he goes, I'm so inspired now. And, you know, you never think about that. But, yeah, you just got to do it and talk to yourself a lot and just not in public. <laughs> well, and also, this was a years-long journey. This was not like, oh, that oh, was a rough God. year. This is something you've been working on for a long, long time. 1986, I started with the split syndrome. How did you start, how did you come to to deal with those rejections when one would come in? Did you have, like, a, a way of thinking about it? Like, okay, I'm going to be bummed for the afternoon, and then I'm going to move on. Like, how did, what, how did you, what was your toolkit for dealing with You know, that? I kept thinking of that Dick Cavett quote where, he said, don't be intimidated by stars because they pull their pants down, go to the bathroom, too. Right. And right. even though that's a coarse analogy, I kept thinking, ah, oh, what is this? What does this agent really know? I, you know, she just doesn't get it. You know, she needs, she, maybe she's not smart enough to get it. Or, and I kind of was disdainful in some regards. But I just kept, kept thinking, there's somebody out there who gets it and who will get it. I just haven't hit the right one. And a lot of these agents had mistakes and grammatical errors. And I just kind of thought, well, you know, it's not like they're the be-all and end-all. Right. They, they, I never would have written a shitty sentence like that. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> right. Um, you've taught English over the years. Yes. Um, yes. What have you observed about young people over over the time you've been doing it, how have they changed? Because you hear a lot about millennials and Gen Z, and like, how have young people changed in the time that you've been teaching? Well, I left in 2018, so I understand from my still teaching friends that there's there's a, been a lot of changes since then. Sure, so I, I can't speak to that. Um, I would just say that my experience with them, and I, I guess it's the same mother-powered instinct in me that. Um, there wasn't a kid that I couldn't make a better writer. Um, I, I really had a great faith in them, and I would remember saying to them at the beginning of the semester, you don't think you can write, but I know you can. And they would look at me with these big saucer eyes, like, is she out of her freaking gourd? Well, they thought that anyway. But um, they just couldn't believe that somebody believed in them that much. But it was really about me knowing I, as a teacher, I could really teach them something. So they kind of went with that, and uh, I did make most of them into better writers because they were willing to listen and try it. And I just think students were wonderfully adaptive and ready to learn, and I just had the greatest respect for them because... You know, I knew I could teach them something, and I could make them believe in themselves. And they finally began to believe in themselves. They are so scared and insecure, most of them, like the rest of us. But I made them believe in themselves because I, I told them they could open up and learn this stuff. But I think it's really different now. It's gone 
in a different direction, you know, because I, I probably couldn't teach any more of the stuff I was teaching them. But I love them, and I love the fact that many of them um, – one of my favorite students said, damn it, I'm going to get an A from you. And I said, oh, really? Yeah. And she yeah. said, yeah. And she did. But she yeah. said, I've never worked so hard in my life. <laughs> but, you know, I just love the fact that some of them were willing to work hard and they knew finally they could do it. And that was the best gift of teaching ever. Your, your journey in the book with Hadley and also I think yours as, as you're trying to get it published was believing in yourself. Were there times when you were trying to instill that in your students when you're like, I need to hear this as well? Was it like a message that you were kind of bringing home to yourself as well while you were doing that? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. You know, I have to thank my parents because they ignored me most of my life when I was growing up. They, they always they had a lot of problems and they talked amongst themselves. But I was not a, a, an adored, you know, hovered over child. They left me kind of on my own to figure stuff out. And so I read a lot and, you know, did a lot of stuff on my own. And I really am glad they did that because I became kind of self-sufficient and self-resilient. And, I mean, they loved me and everything. But it wasn't like, oh, Judy, let's sit down and talk about this movie. Or let's, let's go over this book you're reading. Because they had their own problems. But I just saw a very strong mother you know, kind of fight through stuff. And she kind of expected me to be resilient. And I think that always was in me to, you know, damn it, I'm going to keep on going. And my mother would want me to. She always did. And, you know, there's you got to have kind of a self-resilience and a strength inside, I think, that you return to over and over uh, you know, and not be mollycoddled and looked for everybody else to take care of you. But it's hard, and I'm damaged as a result, I'm sure. But I think that same force and fire that I try to instill in my students, you know, I was telling myself as well, yes. What are the most gratifying moments when you were teaching? What are the moments that you love the most? Because I know there's things like, oh, I got a great essays or what, all of that stuff. But what were the, what were the gold moments? Seeing kids get their papers back after they had tried some new methods and been encouraged and just seeing their eyes light up, you know. And, I mean, I spent so much of my life writing comments on there to help them. Right. And I, I kind of went through with against everything they tell you. Don't spend much time grading the papers. I spent hours grading their papers because – you know, and then you'd see them go off onto jobs that involved writing. You know, I've got so many kids out there now in the fields of writing that is so gratifying. Yeah. And, you know, just hearing that you were a bitch and you were tough, but I never learned so much from anybody in my life. And I, I got a kid in graduate school now, and he's he's going to change the world. And he told me nobody ever cared about how he wrote before, but... He said it just electrified him how he could start to write and what was in him. And, you know, that's the whole beauty of it is to see the kids, like, turn into the people that they didn't know they could become. And it wasn't just me. It was just the fact that I encouraged them to try things. But I, I don't think a lot of teachers do this. But, damn it, I'm smart, and I had a lot of background, and a lot of teachers don't have that background 
in rhetoric or comp or they didn't read as much so they can't share that with the students and it worries me terribly yeah interesting when did you fall in love with literature oh you know when i was in diapers yeah. which believe it or not wasn't yesterday um <laughs> it was always again as a kid that was told to go off and be quiet i i had to read a lot of books so my sister and i read tons of books and we went to the library and read Grimm's fairy tales and reading was an escape. I mean, back then I'm so old there, my dad controlled the TV, so we couldn't watch a lot of TV at night. So we had to think of things to do. And I had a grandmother, my grandmother Hopkins, who loved to read and she was always correcting my pronunciation. And, but it was at an early age. And, you know, Dennis, as a teacher, I would sometimes read to my students and you could hear a pin drop because the kids loved to be read to. It was like taking them back to childhood. And I don't think enough kids are read to or are invested in literature. And of course, now you can't read some of the best writers we've ever had because it's politically incorrect. So, but I just saw the magic of reading stories to kids and certainly that was true with me um you also love poetry and i never really got into poetry mm-hmm. but you'll often post a beautiful poem or you'll send a poem you've sent me poems before what i do seem to appreciate about it just from a somebody that's not into it at all is that it can kind of capture a moment like it can kind of yeah. be the thing you need to read in that day to sort right, of help right. you on your way or something like that. What's special about poetry to you as a form? Oh, just that, you know, that it's a moment, that it's words compressed and, you know, and how they can echo in that compression that you don't see in sloppy tweets or, you know, contemporary literature for a lot of it. Um, It's just a moment compressed that has the right words and the right words around it that just captures that moment. And it's really difficult. I don't consider myself a poet, but I love playing around with it. But yeah, I've always loved it. And I still read it all the time. Do you have a favorite poet? Um, Well, there's a lot of wonderful contemporary poets. Uh, Janine Hall Gailey is, is a wonderful contemporary poet. Dorian Lau, L-A-U-X. Uh, Sharon Olds is one of my favorites. Um, when she writes about her parents when they were young, that that poem is just so, oh, my God, it just reminds me of my parents, how she wants them not to, you know, get together at the end, but she wouldn't be there unless they did. But it, it's just such a powerful poem. So those are a couple of my favorite ones. Cool, I'll check them out. There's some wonderful sentences and thoughts in your book, and I wrote a, a few down. Thank um, you. This line, I don't make memories anymore, I just live on them. Oh, mm-hmm. what a gun punch, that idea. Yeah. And that's something that yeah. Hadley says, right? Yes, when she's leaving Trey's performance. Right, just that idea of, like, I, everything good already happened. Um, yeah. And now I'm just coasting. Exactly. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to that. And then there's this one sort of passage you have about this idea that we're only given a certain amount of happy moments in our life, and maybe maybe we've spent them all already. Right. Um, Yeah, I could relate to that in some ways, for sure. That was spoken to me by my ex-boyfriend at Dickinson College. 
And at the time he said it, I thought, you know, this is a really lousy way of saying, I don't want to see you anymore. Right. Because he was dumping me. So, um, but yeah, I mean, he fancied himself quite the uh, poet slash literary genius. And again, he got married and had kids. So, so much for his dreams as well, of which he was full of. And, uh, you know, he just told me that. And I just thought, this is such a convoluted way of saying, you're dumped. <laughs> but it did. But it worked, Dennis, because I remembered it and stuck it in the book. There it is. It paid off. You got something <laughs> right. out of it. You, uh, Judy, you're one of the funniest people I've ever known. Oh, my Nobody God, Nobody makes no. me laugh like you do. You would send oh my me... God. You would send me... Dr. Beaverman um, observations about the movies when I was working on Screening Party, and I would just pluck them right and put them in the book. I wouldn't change a word. Uh, um, and we would do pop culture funny things when you lived here. We would laugh about this uh, and that. When you when you moved away from L.A. and went and taught and stuff like that, where would you bring your humor? What, what did you do with all that well, funny for stuff? for years, and I mean this sincerely, I would say it out loud and say, Dennis, <laughs> and pretend like you were here because I knew... You know, you and I would always be talking about this. And I'd say to my friends, sometimes Dennis would call me up and say, can you get over here to do color commentary on the Miss America pageant? Yes. And I missed that. So I would kind of just do a running monologue by myself and pretend you were here. When you were but, in the um, woods. When you're in the woods I was like in the babe woods. in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I did meet a, a guy at Pitt, my, one of my best friends, Tim Zankus, a professor, and he and I became fast friends, and, you know, we carry on the tradition of laughing and so forth. But, yes. you know, it's not like I don't miss you terribly, because those, those sessions at your house were unbelievable. I mean, Tony and Scott and Alan, and it was just, it was just wonderful fun. Something about Pretty Woman, about the song to Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Yes, you wrote the whole parody, of Bear, <laughs> yes. and I plopped it up and put it in, in Screening Party. And so, if luckily that book never made any money, so I don't owe you any money. But oh, um, but it was a, a super fun adventure. And um, yes. I used to when I would get a tape from you or like musings, I would it would just felt like gold. Um, oh, that's the, so the, sweet to say. The character of Doctor Beaverman in my book Screening Party was something that you had sort of done for like silly sketches that we did or audio recordings and yeah she was it sort was of a shrink off, yeah but she was she was sort of well formed though she was sort of a shrink that had read a lot of freud and had theories about everything was sexual and stuff like that talk a little about where beaverman came from for you because it was sort of like a switch you could turn on well as you know um i was trying to psychoanalyze all of the people in my life that had uh i couldn't figure out right so i mean i spent my life in the psychology department of Barnes & Noble in Studio City and, and Book Soup, you know, I have more psychology books than, you know, Dr. Ruth. And it's just, I was always trying to figure it out, you know, psychoanalyze. What's wrong with me? Why did it fail? What's wrong with him? So that's where Dr. Beaverman came on because, you know, I was so full of all this in fact, I have a funny Barnes & Noble story. Um, I went there, and it was like some really esoteric psychology book. And I said, look, I get paid next week. Could you please put this down, and I'll be in. Just put it away for me, so I don't, I don't want any. He goes, 
it's fine on the shelf. Not a soul is going to buy this book. I will never forget that. And he reshelved it, and it was there the week yes. I came back. But, but that's why I was, yeah. you know, fancying myself a, you know, amateur yeah. psychologist trying to figure out what was, you know, yeah. not to be figured out. You know, it, it brought up that emotion that I would feel when I would go to, like, Amoeba to try to sell my UCDs back, and they're like, I'm sorry. Yes. We, we, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to take these Leanne Rhyme CDs that your friend Judy gave you when she worked at Curb <laughs> Records, which I would never part with, by the way. Um, uh-huh. I am up to my gills and Osmond CDs because of you. Yeah. And, and that's a good And I love that. And I actually, you, you used to give me Osmond CDs, and I gave one to Sandra Bullock when I interviewed her for <gasps> a magazine. It made it into oh. the article. So did she uh was she an Osman fan? I think she was. Fan? She was into it. Yeah, she was into it. Yeah. Um and gosh, what a 90s moment. What a 90s oh moment my that God. was. Yeah. Very. I very. Love it. Yeah. Did you ever meet them in the record company office? Uh I met one of them, a lesser Osman, Merrill. Merrill, sure. I think he did he a lot of the and, uh, bookkeeping was very and stuff. Sweet. Yeah. I shouldn't call him a lesser, but you know, there's Donnie Marie and there's the rest of them. <laughs> That's right. So, That's right. But he was very, very sweet. Yeah. Um, I went to the Oz- Donnie Marie did a show at the Pantages. It was probably ten years ago. Oh. I was in heaven. Bought a T-shirt, wore it unironically. <gasps> Donnie ran down the aisle and I touched his hand. <gasps> and oh my. Marie came out and sang opera. This was a grab bag of a show. Danny, Donnie was like trying to be uh, in sync, like he was doing boy band moves. And Marie's like, and now I'm going to sing an aria. It was everything Uh you wanted it to be. And (laughs) (laughs) oh god, they're so versatile, and they want the world to know it, don't they? I loved it. Yeah, that's so so crazy. Um, There's a writing group that figures in your book. That's part of Hadley's world. Were you part of writing groups? Do you think that's a good thing? Oh my god, a couple. Yeah. I I don't take to them very well, you know. I mean, I'd rather save up and go hungry and pay a <coughs> professional editor than than go with a writing group because you never know who's jealous or who's stabbing you in the back or how much knowledge they have about dialogue. So I say my word of warning is go hungry, don't buy any clothes, you know, don't pay your HBO bill and buy a the time of a professional editor because it is such a Fellini movie of of different types of characters you know what I mean so and there's all all these these people that are trying to you know sound like the professional and become dominant and I, I don't know if that got through but it just they they don't work for me right and they really didn't work for Hadley but she liked the fact they were well-meaning people especially Dolores. Yeah, the, they were nice. Yeah, yes. they, they felt like you felt like they were giving her a chance. Um, yes. What did you learn about the world of publishing? Because it sounds like you really oh. kind of. Uh, oh my god! If you were to do well, it again, I what would you do differently? I'm not young. I'm not bipolar. I'm not uh, dystopian. Yeah. I'm not neurodivergent. These are all things they want nowadays, you know. Right. And I'm not crashing any of those, but they just don't want like an older white straight woman's thing you know but yeah. i got agent interest and every one of them said that hadley's too negative we love your writing hadley's too negative so i kept thinking wait is there like a sexism going on here that women can't be moody and 
embittered and depressed and funny and sarcastic and driven, you know, that they ought to be like happy and nice and, and, you know, all these positive qualities. And it just kind of threw me, you know. So I sent it back to the editor and she said, we'll soften her up a little. But, you know, that, that was kind of to me sexist, you know. That's interesting. That, yeah. And I, I connected on uh, a, a blog once, a Twitter, with um, Emma Berry, who wrote Funny Guy. It's a romance with a leading hero who's kind of miserable. He's a jerk. And I just wrote to her and I said, this is so good to see a negative characters. And she said she'd gotten so much blowback about that. But she said, and I told her I had too, and she said, well, there's a lot of sexism in that too, that women can't be that way. And I thought, you know, that's why I kind of like the Scarlet reference, because she's hated now for a lot of reasons, but she's hated too for being ambitious and willful and nasty. Headstrong is the word they always use. She's headstrong, you know. And willful and passionate. Yeah. But she's still, you know, ingrained in consciousness as a very indelible character. So I I just felt like, you know, that was my and a lot of rejections and I finally thought, well, I was I was gonna send it off to independent meaning small presses and got it snapped up because they are more tolerant, I think, of the more straight forward tales, you know, and women's fiction and romance and stuff like that. And it but worked it was out. still out at a couple agents before I accepted the small press. I just thought I've had enough. And but yeah, they can be very, very blunt agents. They're very blunt sometimes. This isn't for me. Hadley's too negative. You know, not right. looking for this. But I didn't care after a while. I thought, and then I met actually a woman, a professor at my the college I taught, I met her at the hair salon of all places. And she goes, how's it coming? And I said, well, I'm going to give up because I'm going to take a break because nobody's interested. And she goes, do not take a break. You keep sending it out there. And she's a writer herself. So she kind of inspired me to, you know, keep sending it. And I did. That's awesome. Because you did. You stuck with this. Yeah. And, and now it exists. What did it mean to you when you first held it in your hand? Uh it was unbelievable. And then I kept thinking of the dangling modifier and the comma splice that I missed. <laughs> hoping, hoping That's going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> um, you, you know, know I, a, thought, I like a dangle. I, I'm not a, I don't have a problem with a dangle. Okay, that's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I'm good I with it. I should, like, run a contest. Can you find the dangling modifier yes. and give them a copy of the book? I like but it. But, you know, I've been such a loud and disgusting advocate of perfect grammar. And right. then I missed those. Yeah. And they were t- they were missing. I didn't do it on purpose. Yeah. But I do remember I was sent an author's copy and was able to give it to my mom and show her, and she held it in her hands, oh. you know, before she died. So I, I remember she said, I'm so proud of you I could leap. I will never forget that. And oh, my mother's leaping Henry. days were over many years ago. So I just thought that expression was so colorful and it just stayed with me. But she got to hold it, and that yeah. was really important to me. I'm so happy that you had that moment with her. I with, did, With yeah. this book. Um, yeah. You are pretty active on social media. You write a lot about writing, and you post things. Yeah. 
what does that mean for you in your life? Do you find it engaging, stimulating? What's what's yeah, good about it, and what so. is there a downside? I, well, I think the downside is that people get sick of you <laughs> writing about it. Right. Um, you know, and they just want to show their kid pictures and cat pictures. And, right. And they think I'm pompous and an asshole, which I'm willing to own up to. But I think you can't you can't go out into the world and do something and not be pompous and an, and an asshole at times. You can't always be this humble little shrinking violet that says, I hope you guys don't mind, but what do you think of this poem? I promise I won't post anymore for the next 10 years. You know, you've you got to get it out there. And I've made some wonderful friends on Twitter. I have a whole bunch of writers that connect with me, and I think that's really cool. So, you know, I'm kind of reclusive. There's not much to do here in the woods. So uh, it, it's a good outlet for me. It's a community. About writing and, it gives you community. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. I think that's wonderful. Um, tell people how they can buy your book, where they can find it. Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Kindle. It's, just look for it online. It's, it's out there. It's Babe in the Woods. Have you gotten yeah. to, like, sign them for people and stuff like that? I know the book just came out relatively recently. A, a few, a few yes. friends. Nice. I, I don't understand the signing thing, but I'm glad to do it. Yeah. It's not like yeah. I'm going to be Hemingway, but um, I signed yours. Yes. I, I signed the friends that really, you know, were important to me initially, and I have some locally that are going to have me sign, but I just hope it resonates with some people. I mean, I just see Dennis, and I'm so mouthy and, and wordy, but I just see all these women just thinking their only goal in life is to find a man. And I know hormones are potent, right. but it's just like all these kids that were smart in college, you know, just trout pouting and showing boyfriends and engagement pictures and baby pictures. I want them to do something else that only they can do. Right. You know what I mean? And not just worry about having somebody put a ring on it. Right. <laughs> it's, it's important to me that they explore who they are because you're going to need that person sometime in your life. I think that's really interesting. Um, you do amazing imitations. This is a weird segue, but you oh, do, you've got your Mary Tyler Moore. You've got your, you know, your um, share was always solid. Do you ever get <laughs> to do them anymore? Like, are no. they rusty? I think they're rusty. Yeah. Although um, I'll I'll sometimes talk share to my sister if you know. What would you say? That. I'm not some old shoe. <laughs> I just remember that line from the National Enquirer when Richie or somebody threw her out. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm rusty. I don't, I don't, I'm not practicing like I was with you all the time. <laughs> well, you didn't have maybe people like begging you to do it all the time. I was like, oh, we got to get Judy to do Mary Tyler Moore on our answering machine. Like it was just, I, I, I really would, I feel like I would trick you into doing things like a. I, I don't, Mary's still in there, but I'm worried when she died. I thought, oh, go, oh my God, there goes a, a, you know, a side hustle. Because <laughs> people aren't going to remember her as well, and yeah. I don't yeah. know how to imitate Beyonce or Cardi B or whatever is current now. Yeah, but you got the classics. So, you got the classics. Tell people where they can find you on social media. I'm still locked in on Facebook. I don't offer up 
That's a friends only, that. like a friends only zone. I have a good zone. reason for yeah. that. Yeah. I think you know. And uh, but on Twitter, where I can block this particular individual, um, it's at Hey Jude, not Judy. Nice. And I've got my website, which is JudeHopkinsWriting.net, which is you know terribly untended, but I'll I'll get busy with that. But you often post different essays and things you get published in journals, and there's there's yeah. a lot going on. There's a lot going on there, and I'm yeah. very inspired by it. I'm very proud of you for seeing this through. Um, I enjoyed reading your story. I thought it was it, – I liked that it was sort of subversive within its genre in a way. Like it, yeah. you think it's going to be one thing, and it's another thing, and it's, right. it's much richer – than I thought it would be. Oh, thank you. And um, I was, as one friend said, it's dark. It's darker than you might think. Yeah, the woods are dark. Because it's dark in those woods. <laughs> it's dark in them, their woods. But it's it, life is dark. You know, it, life is not an HEA. Yeah. And I know people read HEA just to escape, but I still think you got to hone up and face reality at certain times, and yeah. you better be yeah. prepared, so... Uh, and what are you working on, Dennis? I got to ask you that. Um, I am. My main job is writing these podcasts for Wondery, so that takes up most of my writing juice. Of um, yeah, they're, they're pretty demanding. I just right now the RuPaul arc, three episodes about RuPaul's life, is now on Even the Rich. So I wrote about RuPaul for Pride. And uh, may I just may I just interject as sure. I always do? I think she he's one of our moral leaders. And I agree. Bear with me. Um, you never hear any bad stuff about him. Uh, he's always gracious on talk show hosts or talk shows. He, he's uh, a gentleman when he goes on those. Um, he plays parts like the very poignant um, school counselor who was kind to the, you know, goofy Brady kid in the Brady movie. Right. I, I just think there's something about him that that is moral. He knows who he is. It's important. He stays who he is and he even like he doesn't take any nonsense from the drag queens on the drag race <laughs> yeah no it's true and one of the things that struck me the most about him when i was researching the story is that his sort of mantra of if you're not going to love yourself how can you love anyone else that was always in his work long before drag race it was always he is always. always part of who he was he always had this mission to bring love and self-love and love of other people it was always his brand. He always was that. And so. And dignity. He has yeah. dignity. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you never I, see him cheesy yeah. or less than yeah. a gentleman or he's, he's, he knows who he is. Yeah. He, he's an inspiring person and yes, it was wonderful is. to write about him. Here's my final question. The journey of getting your book published, writing it, uh, Babe in the Woods, it was a long journey. What did you learn about yourself on that journey? Um, I'm more resilient than even I thought, that I didn't give up. I'm so inspired by that. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I'm not a wuss. I'm not somebody who goes, well, you know, I just want to fall into somebody's arms and have some babies and feel better that way. And, and I'm not putting down people who do that. I just think that, you know, I'm not going to be the Hemingway guy who's dying of an infected wound thinking about how once he had wished he had done something and became soft and i just thought i'm i'm not going gently gentle into that good night i'm gonna see this through and 
you know, I did. Yeah, and I think as I'm, I'm, you know, in my late fifties now, and I think sometimes I think of things that I want to do, and there's a part of you that's like, oh, it's too late. It's too late. This is a, that's late. a young man's game, or this right. is a young man's game. And I think when people see people, you know, who are not thirty, um, <laughs> realizing something like this, it's inspiring, and I, I think it's well, great. Thank you so much. But I love you, and you inspired me always, always. Always. Well, I love you, too, and I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, everyone should pick up Babe in the Woods. It's, um, it's an entertaining read, and it's um, darker and more subversive than it seems. Um, and the cover's cute. I like the cover il- illustration. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I just, thank you, Dennis. And I just hope this podcast I did wasn't too loquacious. I, I just keep thinking of that Rolling Stone song, Beast of Burden, Am I hard enough? Am I rough enough? Am I rich enough? You know, I just hope it made for a good podcast. It's and not awesome. You're, it's all of those things. And I have to go look up loquacious because, once again, I don't really know what it is. <laughs> I mean, I have an idea of what it is, but I don't know. And I'm well, sure I uh, have dangling modifiers all over my house um, <laughs> that I have to watch for. I think I've tripped over a couple, but in my house, too. <laughs> all right. But Judy. We, we bathe in the woods. We have nothing to do except use big words. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Dennis. Love, love you. you so much. Thanks again to my friend Jude Hopkins. Pick up her book, Babe in the Woods. All right, so this happened. Uh, So this last weekend, I went to see Janet Jackson in concert at the Hollywood Bowl. It was the opening night of the Hollywood Bowl. And I had had her Together Again tour on my dream board for um, months. And I would look at it whenever I went to the restroom. And so I'm like, I'm going to that concert. I'm going to that concert. Um, I love Janet all through the years. I love... Her dance videos, she inspired me to want to be a dancer and just like so much history. I remember I was on the AIDS ride in 1995. I did the AIDS ride from San Francisco to L.A. And about three days in, I'm like, this is so fucking boring. I can't believe how boring this is. So I went to a local record store and I had a little micro cassette with me, like a recorder, a reporter's small cassette player. Um, and I bought Rhythm Nation so that I could listen to that while I pedaled to L.A. And it helped me. It helped me through. Um, that's one of many memories I have about it. So I was like, I'm going to go to the show. So um, a lot of my Janet-loving friends, nobody was into it. So I just bought a ticket and went on my own. I just loved it. I loved all those hits. Oh, my gosh. So many songs. And I like the later stuff, too. I like your feedbacks. I like your So excited. And my favorite aspect of her performance was... I was. I wondered how much she would move and how sharp the choreography would be. When she was dancing with her four dancers, they were on point. They looked so good together. Janet was always the sharpest, the tightest. She wasn't like one of those lead singers who you could tell were a little behind the dancers. Like, she was always in the pocket. She always looked the best, you know? Um, and it was the same. Like, they just looked amazing. And the, the four dancers really got to show off and do their thing and they were just such a huge part of the show um i loved it and she didn't talk a lot i wanted her to say more you know like she would say it's so good to be home like i like when people talk about things and it was pride and uh she didn't say anything like happy pride or anything like that um but she did bring out the young philharmonic orchestra the teenage version of whatever it's like a an organization here in LA and they played uh they accompanied her on the ballad again that was the song from Poetic Justice and it was going to be the big moment and everyone turns on their phone lights and the strings play 
And it's that like it was that song. Um, and she does that thing that people do in concert where they sing a couple of words and then they hold the mic out to you and you're supposed to sing the rest. But she did it. I kid you not for like 80% of that song. I don't think she sang five words of it. And I'm like, girl, we're not off book. You know, this is, this isn't, that's the way love goes. I don't know all these words. And I didn't know, I didn't know if she was losing her voice or what, but I've watched other clips on TikTok and I think she kind of does that at every show. Just like, I'm going to sit down and I'm, you guys are going to sing the whole thing. Um, it was a beautiful moment, but I was like, wait, are you going to sing any of it? Cause I, I don't know. I'm not off book. I'm not off book on this, but, um, anyway, and then at the end they had fireworks, they did rhythm nation and, um, it was just a cool thing. And the same night, Mariah Carey was performing at LA Pride. Um, and, you know, so if you're gay in LA, you had to pick your divas. And also, Bernadette Peters was in Pasadena. Like, I don't know what we're all supposed to do. But I went with Janet, and I feel like I'm glad I did because I heard some buzz about Mariah that it was not the, not the greatest. But I also had this feeling while I was there, you know, I put it on my dream board. And so part of the thrill was that I did it. Like, I was there. I had the same feeling in Mexico City. Like, it just raised the enjoyment of it. It meant more. I don't know. It made me feel good about my life or, or, or my choices or that I'm... There was a part of me listening to Janet and like, we're both still here. We're both still alive. We can both kind of move still and our legs work and stuff. And I don't know. I found it... I found that part of it the most moving thing of all. That's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a shout out to AJ Souza for mixing the episodes. My theme music is my Mark Daniels for placement music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.
I also just wanted to say that the photo of Judy that's pictured with the art of this podcast is one from back in the day when I first... Uh... Also, Judy wanted me to say... Oh, okay. And also the photo pictured with this podcast is of Jude back in the day when we were in our L.A. crazy days. Also, the photo of Jude that's pictured with the, um, also the photo of Jude that's featured as part of the art of this podcast episode, that was from back in our wild LA days. Um, so kind of the way I remember her in those crazy times.